Blog Talk Radio. Gentlemen, and welcome to another special edition of the Forestings Fire American Soccer Show. We're going to review the 2023 U.S. Open Cup Round 5 proper. Big games, amazing games, cup sets galore once again as those two clubs from USL Championship have continued on into the quarterfinals. We will get to those games and discuss those teams in just mere moments, but Before I do, I want to talk about this wonderful thing that has been going on with the U.S. Open Cup, mainly broadcasting. Now, for those of you that have been following it through social media, of course, I've been reporting it through Beyond the 90 at Substack.com. And you can always go to my uh, Twitter page and head over to click my articles, including heading over to beyondthe90.substack.com, along with Carter Krishnire and other writers. And what we have seen so far from CBS Sports has been nothing short but amazing, brilliant, and fantastic. Why is that? Because CBS Sports has now completely stepped up to the plate. Now, they have done a great job covering the UEFA Champions League ever since they won the rights to take it away from Turner Sports at that time, not under Warner Brothers Discovery. And at that time, Turner did not do themselves any favor with how they produced these games on Turner Sports on TNT, and of course through their Bleacher Report app. It all basically fell apart. And when CBS Sports won the rights to host the UEFA Champions League the following year, even though Turner had three years to have it, they just said, we give up. And now this is before Warner Brothers Discovery took over Turner Sports and all Turner Channel properties, including the internet, because they are not the ones that ruined the coverage of the UEFA Champions League. It was the people before them. They ruined it. They basically destroyed it. They tried to be cute. They tried to do two separate studios with different people, and it just did not work. Now, Turner has done an amazing job with the broadcast for the U.S. men's and women's national teams. But this, this, my friends, is a day where we pat the back of CBS Sports. Because what CBS Sports has done has been nothing short, as I've said already, of brilliance, beauty, 
awesomeness. Yes, they have the rights to not only the UEFA Champions League, but the UEFA Europa League and the Conference Leagues. Seti A coverage that they have done very well with Poppy Miller, with Mike Grella, uh, Matteo Benetti, Andreas Cordero, and everyone else there. Showing matches through uh, at, in Argentina, in the Primera Division, the Brasileiro in the Brazil, the Scottish Premier League, the NWSL here in the U.S., CONCACAF Nations League, and CONCACAF World Cup qualifiers. They have done an amazing job. But now, now with the U.S. Open Cup as a part of their stable, they have been blown out of the water. They came out in the third round, and they showed three matches. Continued on in the fourth round with four matches, two on Tuesdays and two on Wednesdays. This past round, in the fifth round, they have two games on a Tuesday and another two games this past Wednesday. Now they're moving on to the quarterfinals. Turner Sports' Bleacher Report football YouTube page. We'll have one game in the quarterfinals on a Tuesday, as CBS Sports will have the other quarterfinal on Tuesday. And the same thing will be for Wednesday's quarterfinal matchups as well. And then afterwards, CBS Sports has said, we don't mind taking over the semifinals and the final for the Open Cup if Turner does not want them. Turner basically said, sure, take them. Because now, now, one of the three major networks, Turner technically counts as a major network as well with their sports coverage with the NBA and the NHL, and now with the U.S. men's and women's national teams, and Major League Baseball. But CBS Sports will always be grouped in with ABC and NBC. And even though ABC is part of ESPN, the truth is CBS Sports has gone above and beyond what, honestly, I never thought they would do. I thought, okay, they got the UEFA Champions League. Okay, UEFA Europa League. Okay, the Conference League. I was happy that they got the CONCACAF Nations League. I said, great, NWSL. This is wonderful. Great, CONCACAF World Cup qualifiers. You know, I've enjoyed the coverage. I've enjoyed everything that they have done so far. Um, I did hope they would be one of the people to get Major League Soccer coverage for national broadcasts. Did not happen. That's okay. MLS got their Apple TV. But hopefully one day CBS will jump fully to go in with MLS somewhere down the road in the future, depending on what happens either in the middle of this 10-year deal with Apple or after this 10-year deal with Apple. We'll have to wait and see. But, but securing the rights to broadcast both semifinal games and the championship final in my opinion, has been 
absolutely tremendous. This is what you hope that someone like CBS would do to give this cup the respect that it completely and utterly deserves. And now we're seeing it. And at the moment, you can watch these matches on the CBS Sports Golazo Network, either through the Paramount Plus app or free on Pluto TV's website at PlutoTV.com. That is their 24-hour, seven days a week, soccer-only channel. Once again, if you have Paramount Plus, you can watch it there or on the free Pluto TV app. Not only are they broadcasting the games, they are also sending you to their studios in New York or in Stamford, Connecticut, depending on where it is being broadcasted. In Stamford, Connecticut, they are going to the desk. Depends on if it's Poppy Miller, if it is Jenny Chu. It is another person. I don't. Uh, maybe even Susanna Collins, Nico Cantor, Jimmy Conrad, Ian Joy. They are discussing matches that were played during the day or the day before, and giving you highlights of every game. That is tremendous. That is amazing. That is something we have been begging for, hoping for, respect, and we're finally get it. And let me also say this to everyone right now. As happy as I was when ESPN had it, did they ever do anything like this for halftime? No. Sure. They went to a recorded video at the time when ESPN had it on their ESPN Plus streaming service, John Champion, Taylor Twelman, as they broadcasted the Open Cup final. And that was fine and dandy. But to see them going to the desk in the studio is huge. It is huge. It is tremendous. When The U.S. Open Cup was seen every single match of every single round on the ESPN Plus streaming service. Yes, you had to use a paywall. Yes, I understand nobody wants to use a paywall. They want to do it for free. The truth is this, and you need to understand this completely. Guess what? While it's nice that it's on the Golazo Network through Pluto TV by CBS Sports, two games a day is not enough. It's not enough because if you want to see your club in whatever round it's in, if if you're an amateur side or an NPSL side or a USL League Two side and you want to watch your club play on the national stage of American soccer and you want it on a national channel, you want to watch it. You don't want to see a stream that was choppy. And terrible. Now, granted, granted, some of the streams that these clubs put on themselves were good, were very good. But still, though, 
Don't you want a national broadcaster to do this? And that's why I'm telling everyone right now, if we're going to get the majority of the games in every single round to be on the Paramount Plus app of CBS Sports, yes, pay for it. Do it. Do it now. I have it. I've gotten it. I love it. It's great. If they are also going to use the Golazo Network on Pluto TV as well, you can watch it for free, go for it. They put a match on CBS Sports Network, go for it. It's great. If we get a match on CBS Sports National, meaning your local CBS channel, and they put it on there, watch it there. This is the time. This is the opportunity. That you want, as an American soccer fan, who loves the Open Cup, that wants to see the Open Cup get the respect that it really deserves. And I really am hoping CBS Sports listens to this. Every match of every round, the Paramount Plus app, the CBS Sports Golazo Network, CBS Sports Network, CBS National. If we can get those games on there, and if you do, you will be rewarded handsomely. We all will. We all will be rewarded. The sport will be rewarded. And this cup competition will be rewarded. ESPN never had the ESPN FC studio people go into halftime and talked about the match. Never did. Didn't have a pregame. Didn't have a halftime show. Didn't have a postgame. Didn't have a bridge show to get to the next match on the West Coast. So you listen to me and you listen to me good. CBS Sports, you are fantastic. You are awesome. And I am proud to say this. Job well done. Time to now talk about these past matches in the U.S. Open Cup. My first guest uh, recorded interview. Once again, the Pittsburgh Riverhounds defeating the Columbus Crew 1-0. Pittsburgh Soccer's now creator and senior editor and senior writer John Krasinski in this recorded interview. And welcome back to the American Soccer Show, ladies and gentlemen. This is the 2023 Lamar Hunt U.S. Open Cup Round 5 Review Show. And joining me is a man, not only did he witness a damn good game, but he also witnessed history as well. And that, my friends, is Mr. John Krasinski of Pittsburgh Soccer. Now, as he joins me on that 1-0 victory by the Riverhounds over the Columbus crew. John, uh, what an amazing night it was along the Mauna Helia. Uh, tremendous evening for everyone in Pittsburgh, a soccer fan, and maybe, just maybe, Pittsburgh is now officially a real soccer town. Ah, that's right. Yeah, that, that's funny because you say that because I, a lot of the fans and the diehards and you know those are pretty closely associated with soccer in our area. Uh, we're kind of posting that in their social media posts after the match. Uh, and you know, honestly, the feel that the fans had for the match, even as the match went on, 
there was the sense of they really they were really getting on the, the referees at the right time. You know, the, the singing, the chanting, the soccer culture uh, in a in a city where, of course, you know, uh, sports culture is re- rich and deep in history, but. Uh, you know, soccer it has some history here, but but not uh, like what we saw uh, Wednesday night, uh, and really the progression of the Riverhounds franchise and and some of the other clubs in this area, especially this the, the, the you know the Division One uh, um, Pit Panthers have just what they've done the last two three years too. So it, this is we are we're seeing maybe you know this is. Uh, this is maybe the, the renaissance or the, the, you know, golden era, if you will, of soccer in Pittsburgh. And uh, it's just, it's awesome to experience it, to be part of it, and obviously to be reporting on it and have a site that, you know, dedicates itself to, to uh, you know, um, objective reporting of, of, of our soccer teams in this area. Very true. What's it like to have Pat McAfee make a mention about Pittsburgh defeating Columbus on his show yesterday. And not only just that, he even saw the game-winning goal and posted it on his Twitter page. Yeah, I saw, you know, it was interesting. I obviously was not aware of that during the game or anything like that. But uh, after the game, it was funny, Robbie Merton in the press conference noticed, said something that somebody mentioned it to him, then he brought it to our attention. So it was ironic that the Pittsburgh kid, Robbie Mertz, uh, had mentioned that to us. But, um, yeah, McAfee, actually, it's interesting because he's, uh, he's obviously younger than me, but he he played for uh, Plum Soccer, which is Plum High School. It's a suburban Pittsburgh high school. Uh, he, play, he played for the soccer program there. And, you know, he's still pretty connected to his hometown and to his school and things like that. So, um, you know, that was, that was a pretty cool thing, yeah, for sure. No, it really was. And, uh, you know, look, uh, I mean, there were those moments when uh, Christos FC got on Scott Van Pelt's ESPN show. Um, Damon Amendolara, who is a true soccer fan, talked about that as well on his CBS Sports Radio show. Uh, just to see Pat McAfee talking about what the Riverhounds were called, Pittsburgh uh, Grit Town, the 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 Gritsburg uh, Riverhounds. That was that was just amazing to watch and just very happy for everyone in Pittsburgh to see that happen. And, you know, all the accolades that the Pittsburgh Riverhounds are now getting, now going into the quarterfinals of the 2023 Open Cup. You know, what an amazing goal that was by Albert Dickwell in the 22nd minute. I mean, that really blew the roof, or whatever roof was on Highmark Stadium, blew it completely off and uh, really sent the entire stadium into a frenzy. It was, uh, you know, it's funny that if you want to hear, like, the way the match kind of went, I mean, I looked around, it was packed, you know, wall-to-wall people, most everybody wearing white, and the first five, ten minutes of the match, it was it was sort of like everyone was kind of feeling it out, even the fans. Uh, obviously, with the, with the heartbeat of the hounds, I always say, the Steel Army, obviously doing their thing, uh, banging the drums and just doing their chants, but... For the most part, it was kind of like the crowd was even feeling it out. And a couple 
plays, I believe Robbie Mertz uh, drew a foul, and there was another time where D.C. Harmon, uh, the Hounds outside back winger, extraordinaire, took a hard shoulder to shoulder, and he went down real hard, and that really woke up the fans. And then, of course, Dequa comes through. Uh, Mertz, you know, obviously it started with Arturo Adonias making a, a, an interception, and then Mertz, you know, quickly getting the ball to his feet and making, noticing and recognizing that Columbus is not pretty well organized in the back, and that this, the center back was split, and he just he found that space to rope one right into Dequa. And, you know, Dequa, that finish was tremendous, um, and it's a progression. It, it looked like a simple finish, but it was really a fantastic finish uh, to do that by Evan um, Bush. So, yeah, good stuff. No, really was. It was really exciting to see that. I, and I really thought Riverhounds under Bob DeLilly, uh they gave no quarter. They, they attacked. They were very smart out there. I thought they played uh, an excellent game. I thought a great game plan by Bob Lilly. To me, I think Wilfred Nancy didn't know what to do out there. Uh, I know his players tried, but I don't know if they were absolutely ready for the River Hounds or ready for a Bob Lilly team to go out there and, and beat them the way they did. Yeah, and you think about it. I said this on my podcast, and I said this after the match, that it, it, I think in a twist of irony, Division Two team probably has a little bit more depth right now than, than the Columbus group. And and I say that, especially on the back line. I mean, Joey Farrell, the veteran USL championship, didn't even play in the last two games for the Hounds. The Hounds started, they started uh, former, uh, seldom used center back Mike DeShields, who was with New England Revolution too last year, but in, in, the, in the Open Cup games. So it's not like the Hounds were just going out there and running their top, top lineup either. Um, so I, I thought that was pretty impressive that the, the Hounds showed their depth that player, basically player one to player 22, that they're very well prepared to, to, to handle any situation. And, and Columbus, you know, you get past their starting Maybe they're 15, 16. They're not. They showed a lot of weakness in terms of their depth, I think. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely they did. And that's one of the things I think, um, you know, like I've said before, I think this is what Bob Lilly installs, you know, and puts in confidence in his players and just absolutely ran right all over Columbus. And I know later in the match, there was some physicality going on. I know your goalkeeper was attacked by the uh, Columbus attacker for no reason. Like I know he's frustrated and everything, but still, though, you know, to intentionally put an elbow into your keeper's side was just terrible. Yeah. I thought. Yeah, it was interesting, and then Pisa got the red card. Uh, you know, at the very end there, following that, and and Bob mentioned that in the press conference. It's like. You know, well, you know, yeah, Pisa pushed him, pushed, pushed the guy off, and you know, we didn't really get a good look at it, whatever happened. But uh, it seemed like it was, it was a retaliation. You know, you can always get caught on the retaliation. You know that, uh, and we all know that, and that's kind of what happened with Pisa. But yeah, it did seem like there was frustration on Columbus's part uh, throughout the evening. There was frustration because the Hounds were 
as you said, cultural, they were really well prepared by Bob Lilly. They were well prepared as a team, as a unit. Uh, and a lot of the key leadership players with this squad now, you know, especially bringing back Danny Griffin and having, you know, Robbie Mertz and having Canardo Forbes and Albert Pico now in his fourth year at Pittsburgh. These are guys that, uh, you know, have played now under Lilly for four, three or four years, and it's important to have those type of players. Even when the Hounds, the Hounds went younger this year, too, which is interesting, roster wise. They, they definitely went younger. Uh, let go Alex Dixon, let go Russell Cicerone. Uh, you know, they, they went younger, but it's really paying off, and they needed those young legs in a match like that because. You know, they needed that depth. D.C. Harmon, as I mentioned, uh, they had Luke Biasi, a second-year player. Marky Barra, another second-year player. They're all contributing, and they're all contributing in these Open Cup matches, and they're, they're really getting the job done. No, they really are. They really, really are, and uh, just another amazing night. And you know what else was amazing there, John? Over 6,000 fans piled in to Highmark Stadium. Uh, that must be the first time in a long time that the Riverhounds have ever had a sellout at that stadium. Just amazing night that everyone in Pittsburgh came over. Um, what have you heard, obviously, with the streaming results uh, through CBS Sports, uh, through their Golazo Network? That had to be an amazing night as well to have so many people watching your club, watching the Riverhounds dismantle at least with a one-goal victory against this Columbus Crew side. Yeah, I mean, it was very exciting uh, to see that and to have that opportunity. I mean, the truth, truth be told, uh, you know, this year, I, you know, the, the last three uh, home matches, I think the last one in April and then the, the other two league, home league matches, uh, were also sellouts. Obviously not 6,000. They were the, the capacity for sellout fee-wise is closer to five thousand, a little bit over five thousand. So that six thousand number, that's standing room. So it was an overflow crowd. But yeah, they've been building some momentum, partially with the success they've had, partially with just the incremental growth that they've had as a franchise. And the team has never averaged more than four thousand. They've always toyed with four thousand uh, in the Highmark Stadium era. So I. I you know, knock on wood, but it looks like they're on their way to, to kind of breaking their uh, attendance records for the year, I think, uh, if, this can, if this keeps up. No, absolutely, and I hope that does, and maybe there'll be an expansion of, a, of capacity for Highmark, and I would be very good for the Riverhounds. I think it would be good for the sport in the, in the city, and, you know, that's my hope for uh, Pittsburgh. You know, like, look, you know, it's not just the Steelers, it's not just the Pirates, it's not just the Penguins, and it's also not just University. You know, University of Pittsburgh. I, I think the Riverhounds are now officially a staple of the town. They're, they're definitely getting there. You know, there's 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 a lot. They've won a lot of fans over in the last couple of weeks. Uh, won more fans. And you know, it, what's interesting is that Bob Lilly is such an ultra detail-oriented, focused coach who's all about the game and, and he can break it down every detail and he's one of the best interviews you'll ever do uh, if you're in the media because, you know, you, you ask him one question and he gives you, you know, he can give you a five, ten minute answer and it fills in a lot of the blanks you might be looking for as a reporter. But, but my point is that Bob still finds a way to communicate and talk about 
the, the bigger picture for the organization. And uh, he did that after the match and, and attributed a lot of this, you know, what, um, you know, what happened as uh, a really important benchmark for the franchise. And even leading up to it, before, before the Hounds knew that they would play New England, uh, at New England, and before they knew the draw uh, against Columbus, Bob just came out and said it. He said, you know what, we badly need to host an MLS team here because he, he recognized the value of that. And, you know, they weren't satisfied with just hosting. You know, in 2015, the last time they hosted MLS teams, and they lost 3-1 to in extra time. I think most people in Pittsburgh at, at that time felt – sort of a sense of satisfaction. It's weird to say, but, you know, they took an MLS team to extra time, and there was a certain sense of, like, all right, that was great. And we saw what the atmosphere was all about, and people were, you know, the same kind of atmosphere, but they lost that match. Uh, and there was a, a hunger, a taste for more of it, and it hasn't come. It took eight years for another MLS team to play at Highmark Stadium. So that was something that the organization has been hoping for, and they finally got the luck of the draw to go their way and, and get that at least get that one home match. It would be nice if it was the second one against Cincinnati, but of course, you know that's going to be a challenge. But they were there last year, and similar type of matches, kind of what you know what happened in uh, you know against Columbus and and New England, but. I don't, I don't know. I think that's another topic for another day. We'll preview that for two weeks. But, but uh, they really, they're savoring the moment. The organization is, is you know, taking advantage of this. It's, it's, it's important uh, for the growth of the game in this area for this organization for, for it to become relevant in the mainstream. Uh, a Pittsburgh sports fan or the mainstream Pittsburgher. I mean, I walk into work and people are coming up to me and saying, oh, how about those river hounds? So that's that's all they could ask for. John Krasinski, Pittsburgh Soccer Now. The river hounds defeating the Columbus Crew 1-0. They will face FC Cincinnati at TQL Stadium in the quarterfinals. John, thank you as always, and I'll talk to you again soon. All right, thanks, Daniel. Take care. Once again, John Krasinski of Pittsburgh Soccer now has the Pittsburgh Riverhounds upsets, cup sets, the Columbus crew by final of a goal to nil. My next guest, of course, from soccer, excuse me, Bayou City Soccer, covering the Houston Dynamo as they defeat the Minnesota United FC by a final of four goals to nil. The one and only Derek Stowers joins me tonight. Derek, welcome back. Big win for the Houston Dynamo as they move on to the quarterfinals in the 2023 U.S. Open Cup. Yeah, uh, it was. <laughs> I think it was our biggest win of the year. And, you know, whenever you're in a knockout round of, uh, you know, competition, it, it means even more, especially for a team that has uh, struggled to score goals this season when, when you get four nothing, you know you feel pretty good about yourself. No, absolutely. And I gotta say, uh, you know, uh, Corey Baird to me, I've always felt he's had the ability to score goals, and maybe at times it's been difficult. But he's gotten himself a hat trick, you know, in this match, and you know that's tough to do, especially in open cup play. Yeah, and and against a uh, a pretty quality opponent in uh, Minnesota uh, United. Um, you know, obviously 
getting a penalty and then uh, them going down a man obviously makes things a little bit easier for you. But especially for a team like uh, Houston, as I said, you know, that has struggled to score goals. And, you know, Corey Baird has been a little bit of a controversial figure um, among a lot of the, the Dynamo faithful, the fans, um, because he's primarily utilized as kind of like a defensive first uh, kind of forward, and that's kind of the identity that Ben Olsen is uh, trying to instill. So for him to come away with a hat trick and I believe an assist as well, like, you know, what a game. I mean, you can't really, you know, right place, right time and everything, but um, this was definitely the kind of win that I think that the club needed, even even with the caveat of being up a man. Um, definitely it's the kind of um, morale and momentum boost that the that the team can use going forward, not just for the, the U.S. Open Cup, but hopefully in the regular season as well. What has Ben Olsen been so far since he's taken over uh, the club? And uh, I know there's been a couple of, uh, shall we say, not so much questionable decisions with the starting 11, but I guess from cer- certain members of the media asking a question of why a certain player who's a designated player not getting the uh, the proper amount of minutes to be out on the pitch consistently, you would say. Yeah, um I'll, I'll I'll get to the the the, the Sebas in the room uh, in a second. Um, <laughs> I I think that um, what he's really tried to do um, is utilize a you know utilize and instill a defensive mindset because that that's not an easy thing to do, especially in this league. And uh, and you know it's not easy to score goals either and do things, but kind of having that defensive identity really pushes people to working together. And I think that's what he's really trying to do. He's, he's changed his starting 11 several times, you know, sometimes because of uh, red cards, sometimes because of injuries, sometimes, you know, he wants to see who, you know, what, what pairings work well. Um, But that's always been the identity. And, you know, at least here in Houston, we've been a very difficult team to score against. But we've been – the offense has kind of struggled as a result of that kind of identity. And I think this kind of win is definitely the kind of the, the stepping stone that we, we really needed to kind of show that we can do a little bit more than just defend and be difficult to score against. We can punish you too. Um, and as as far as the uh, Sebas Ferreira goes, you know, I think th- there's been uh, criticisms about him in practice, not always trying the the hardest, and you know, and and with the minutes that he does get, he doesn't necessarily produce, and that's been disappointing as well. And he doesn't, he's not, you know, he, he's a traditional number nine where he likes to hold the ball up and everything. And when the team is doing a defensive first mentality, he's often left on an island and really can't contribute in the ways that the the team as a whole is looking to. So unfortunately for him, he's kind of, 
at least every now and then the odd man out. But a lot of these other guys, Bossy, Thor, and Corey Baird, you know, they're stepping up in um, more than one way, more than one traditional way anyways, uh, compared to uh, the sub-ass in the room, as we said. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. I understand where you're coming from. Uh, talk about um, if I mispronounce his first name, I apologize. Aliyu Ibrahim uh, scored a great goal in the 79th minute to make it three nil at the time. Has he been uh, brought over as well on a transfer? Has he, has he been through the uh, Dynamo Academy? What is good? What's so special about Ibrahim that you feel comfortable uh, that he's going to go out there and perform well? Yeah, I, I believe, and, you know, any, anybody feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. You know, this has been a very wild year in terms of transfers and people coming in and out of the, the Dynamo this year. Uh, he's coming over from uh, Nigeria, and one of, the, one of the things that I really loved about watching him, I believe that this was his first game uh, playing playing in he might have come on as a really late substitute um in a, in in another game but uh this was getting to watch his game he is so good on the break and and he's so good at staying on side on the break which is you know one of those things that it isn't always easy um uh, to to master because you you've got to say a step uh in front of your opponent but you know you've got to say a step behind at the same time uh to to keep yourself in an onside position and just giving him these through balls where he can just run into space and and do something with and you know he also had the assist to complete Corey Baird's hat trick. So not only did he have a great run down at the end line, he cut it back right into Corey Baird's run for him to one touch it into the, the side post. Uh, brilliant. You know, so he, I think he, he's got a future if he can have that space to run. And definitely, I think, again, the caveat of having, you know, a man advantage and, Goal advantage is a is a huge thing, and I think, uh, and th- th- this this kind of speaks to your last question. I think um, one of the things that I really like to see was it was really phenomenal. I think to to see the the team not sit back on their lead with, I think it was like roughly they they scored two goals in like the last ten minutes or something like that, and Usually, if you're up to nothing, you know, and up a man, you might sit back. But they they went for the throat, and for a defensive-minded team, that's really positive to see taking that next step. You know, um, Ben Olson, when he was the head coach of DC United, they had a horrible year in the Eastern Conference. I mean, they were basically dead last, I think, back in 2013. But somehow, he led DC United into an open championship, defeating Real Salt Lake in the final. Um, do you feel you've got that same magic with him uh, this year? You think you got there's an opportunity? You know, um, <laughs> 
I, I, I really hope so. You know, you never, you never want to count anything out because of, like, you know, the Dynamo are playing the Chicago Fire coming up in the next round, and they're not doing so well in the Eastern Conference. The Dynamo are kind of right in the middle trying to keep gaining for the, the MLS regular season. Both, both sides are going to come out hungry, and that's uh, it's always tough to play away in this country, um, for this sport anyway. So you, you kind of want to hope that they use this momentum um, to, to really turn things around, but uh, you never want to count anybody out, and I think that Ben Olsen would be the first one to, to say that as well. You know, they, you know, it was a great win and everything, but you know we got to look at the next game. Let me ask you this: Obviously, as you said, you're going to be taking on the Chicago Fire on the road. Um, were you a little dismayed, or were you not surprised that maybe Austin FC was not going to be your opponent in the quarterfinals, or were you looking uh, for that little Texas revenge uh, that Austin was, uh, you know, doing some many, many wonderful things last year, and of course this year they're just not doing so good. <laughs> well, you know. First of all, uh, in, in our little writer's discord for Bayou City Soccer, uh, one, of our, one of our guys, Manny, said he was disappointed uh, because he would have gone to the game if it was at Austin, and he was kind of hoping, hoping for that result. Um, you know, <laughs> there, there are things that you hope for. Like, obviously, it would be incredibly satisfying to go up against Austin and beat an in-state rival, especially I've seen some of their their comments on the Chicago Fire thing that have been a little, like, uh, eye-rolling. And and it would have been satisfying to to take them on and, you know, hopefully win. But uh, at the same time, you know, all, all that stuff is out of your control. You don't get to get to choose who you go up against, and whoever it is, you know, you, you, to be the best, you've got to get through the rest. And uh, feel like even sometimes when really good clubs fall to other clubs, there, there there's a reason for that, and you got to go through those those guys too. So it is what it is, and even if it you know, some of our guys don't get to go to Austin and have a good time. You know, they uh, hey, they get to go to Chicago. <laughs> Absolutely. Go enjoy some uh, Chicago food. Why not? Go up there and have some fun. Okay, now it's time to talk about the, your opponent, your next opponent, which will be the Chicago Fire. Um, obviously they changed head coaches. It's no longer Ezra Hendrickson. Uh, Frank Klopas returns in an interim role for the Chicago fire course of three to four time open cup champion themselves. What do you have to worry about with the Chicago fire team now that they're under Frank, Frank Klopas? Well, uh, you know, like, like I said, it's always difficult in this country playing away, they're going to be playing in front of their home fans. They're going to be playing at the, you know, the historic soldier field. I feel like that's going to be uh, one of their, their biggest obstacles while also keeping the, the regular season, 
you know, they're the the regular regular season goals in mind at the same time. So, you know, I, I'm curious how lineup decisions are going to going to change as the the competition continues in the U.S. Open Cup continues to increase. Um, yeah, it's going to be difficult. Chicago's a team, as as I said, you know, they're uh, not doing so well in uh, the regular season, which means that they they definitely have this state circled as a competition that can kind of pick themselves up in their own way uh, to justify a good season. And Frank Klopas is a great coach, so uh, with a lot of history in this league, so he knows the difficulties of travel and what it takes to compete in competitions like this. So I think they've—they're definitely a team thirsty uh, to. To do well, nobody wants to lose these competitions. But when when it's tough in uh, the regular season, you're going to make it a lot more difficult in in knockout rounds uh, for the for the Open Cup. So Houston Dynamo got to show up uh, in the story. They they've got to put together a good lineup because then they have to know that this is going to be a team that pursuing a win. I remember when the the Dynamo won the U.S. Open Cup. I uh, believe back in 2017, we we weren't doing so well within the regular season, but we really prided ourselves within the U.S. Open Cup. So I I can imagine Chicago is definitely feeling the a similar level of competitiveness for that. <laughs> Absolutely, Derek. Thank you again for joining me tonight, and I'll talk to you again soon. Good luck in the Open Cup and the rest of the MLS season. Hey, thank you so much. Have a good one. Thank you. Derek Stowers from Bayou City Soccer uh, covering the Houston Dynamo. Uh, always follow him and his friends over there at BayouCitySoccer.com. This man just came back from his honeymoon, but but he's got a good woman next to him because they both watched that big 1-0 victory by Birmingham Legion to upset cup set Charlotte FC once again Kaylor Hodges from the Hammer Down podcast and Kaylor Birmingham Alabama is all lit up it's a party town once again but this time it's for the legion Absolutely thanks for having me on as always look 12,722 people showed up for the Birmingham Legion and that's not to mention the two biggest uh, colleges in the state, uh, Alabama and Auburn, were playing in a tournament less 20 minutes away from the stadium. And still over 12,000, almost 13,000 people showed up to watch Legion get not just a 1-0 win, but if you really watched the second half, even before the red card, a dominant Legion performance. It really was. And, you know, I just have to tell you, Tommy Sohn, has his stamp all over this match because as you know as well as I do, I know Charlotte FC is in their second season in Major League Soccer, but they have proven to be a tough customer, yet Tommy Stone, who has once managed an MLS, especially with DC United, he knew exactly what needed to be done, and he got his players ready to go. Yeah, Charlotte, when they play well, 
they are a counterattacking team. They don't want the ball. When they play well, they are counterattacking. When Legion play well, they are also a counterattacking team. Unfortunately for Charlotte, they're expected to be the quote-unquote better team, the more dominant team. A team who is dominant does not concede possession. So Legion were going to let them hold on to the ball, knowing the game plan was always the counterattack, and not just because it's MLS team, but that's just their normal way of doing things. Tommy Stone, knowing that the Charlotte team is going to have a little bit of ego, not necessarily because they think they were better, but because they're the MLS team. They have to be better. They have to be dominant on all fronts, and it fell straight into Legion's hands. And, I mean, Tommy, he has taken a lot of flack from Legion fans but uh, throughout the years. But this year, year five with the Birmingham Legion, I don't think anybody has an ill word to say about him because it's been hard. It's been a difficult, it's been a difficult stretch with a lot of key players injured, but yet he has continued to make the right decisions at the right time to get massive wins. They really, really did. And as you said, Charlotte, down a man from the 51st minute through the rest of this match, it was Adelson Melanda who got himself into basically booking problems. And that was in the 28th minute. And then, of course, that ill-advised tackle that he created to get the second yellow and then red to be sent off. And Charlotte FC goes down to 10 men the rest of the way. That really had to be... Uh, Tommy Stone licking his chops to say, okay, now we can pull this off. Yeah, I mean, Tyler Pasher, you know, who's who's been around the MLS block a little bit, was the Canadian international um, recently, too. So, I mean, good, good player. Um, he does what you expect him to do. He's a highly technical player, and he forces you to make decisions. And while you could argue the first yellow card that he got was a little bit ticky tacky, that's all that second yellow is a yellow every single time. It's a tactical foul. That's always a yellow and Tyler Pasture does his job, gets his yellow, you know, claps it off and just says, Hey, I did what I had to do and it really set the team up for success. I mean, even even at the right afterwards even well, even before that, Legion really felt like the tide was turning in their direction. And that red card, I think a lot of people, as soon as the red card happened, kind of knew that they were going to win. It felt like it was inevitable at that point because the tides were already turning. And then, you know, one mistake and one executed dribble and Legion are up a man. And boy, oh boy, at the hour mark, that was Prosper Kasim, who got a great pass from Juan Agadello, and then he cut inside from the far side of the field, got into the middle, goes low into the low near corner, and makes it 1-0, and of course, party time at Progressive Field. Yeah, protect I mean, the stadium, Prosper, excuse me. No problem. Uh, yeah, protect, uh, Prosper Legion have seen that same goal from Prosper since 2019. He has scored that goal, I mean, it seems like 100 times now. He has his favorite left foot. Every Legion player, every Legion fan knows that that left foot is made of gold. And the moment he started cutting inside, if you look at the videos, the moment he started cutting inside, half the stadium started standing up because they knew a shot was coming. They just know the way that he lines himself up. And for the guy who was our first ever goal scorer, 
the guy who uh, won us our first ever game, the guy who was our first ever 100, you know, appearance player, our first ever a home playoff goal scorer, and now our first ever goal against the MLS team in competitive office, you know, competitive competition. Prosper Kassim may not be the most talented player on the pitch, but he is the only person I truly trust with the ball at his feet in the dying moments. He is just a special, special player. I can definitely understand where you're coming from because I knew a former MLS player who was basically the same thing. He wasn't talented enough. He probably wasn't good enough, but he always found a way to get the ball in the back of the net. You probably have never heard of him. People who know of him currently uh, works with the San Jose Earthquakes, and of course, that's former Metro Stars slash New York Red Bulls legend John Wolinick because uh, I always called him Wooly Magic. Wooly magic because he always found a way to get that ball in the back of the net. So I exactly know what you're talking about if you want to compare uh, uh, Promise uh, Kasim to John Wolinick, which I will do. But I understand completely where you're coming from. And, of course, uh, you know, when you see on social media the mayor of Birmingham, Alabama, the mayor actually advertising everyone to get to Protective Stadium and watch the Birmingham Legion get down the business in the Open Cup. What does that make you feel as a native Birmingham, uh, Birminghaman, if I can say it correctly? I, I mean, it's, it's kind of unreal, right? I mean, we have been following Birmingham soccer for a long time. I mean, it's it's something that it hasn't gotten a lot of love. I mean, from the grasshoppers to the hammers and now to the Legion, we have seen lots of iterations of Birmingham soccer. And while we knew that the USL was going to be for real because it was professional, right? We knew that professional athletes were going to be coming to Birmingham. No one really knew what it meant. And it took, it took five years surviving a pandemic and everything else along the way. But seeing the mayor get involved, seeing um, a bunch of news stations that normally don't cover the team get involved and actively push it, not just before, but after reporting the match itself. Um, it's a magical time to be a Birmingham soccer fan, and we're living in through one of the golden moments of this team's history. And, you know, our next uh, upcoming game has some really fun implications with it as well. I'm assuming you're going to get some pretty good visiting support from the Miami area. Obviously, Alabama's not that far away. I mean, if you're coming from South Florida, probably it will be, but obviously it's not that far away if you're going to fly it over. But um, does this help push a narrative maybe that while it's nice to be at Protective Stadium and obviously you're sharing that stadium not only with UAB, but also with the USFL games and at the same time, you know, whatever uh, sporting event will be played over there. Does this push the narrative now that maybe that the Legion will can finally maybe get their own stadium? I think so. I mean, a lot of people have been waiting to see what Legion can bring. I mean, we've seen 8,000, we've seen 7,000, we've seen those kind of numbers kind of regularly, and is that enough to really say, hey, we're going to invest in a multi, multi-million dollar stadium? Maybe not. But, you know, 
even if, you know, an extra thousand, two thousand people stay from these open cup games, we're looking at at Legion averaging ten thousand people a game and at that point you can't ignore that and owners can realize, hey, we can invest in this and I this seems like it could be something that could really push the hand of the city and the owners to finally build that Birmingham Legion FC stadium. Very true. Absolutely. And obviously, um, I mean, I've never been to Birmingham, obviously. And uh, I mean, I I go to Google Maps a lot myself. I like to check out some of these places. (laughs) I would like to visit. I would like to visit, not just because it's the the soccer situation, the sporting situation, but, you know, I would like to see what what it's like down in in, in Birmingham, Alabama, and and what the, uh, the atmosphere is, so to speak. But, you know, to see where you are in in the downtown area, of course, you know, the Barons, um, in minor league mm-hmm. baseball, obviously, you know, they have done a great job uh, pulling in uh, people to watch their games and uh, to see what's going to happen there. But, you know, I really think seeing this Open Cup run, as you've already said, and I haven't been saying it, that's going to open up many more doors. And then, you know, you got to keep on going and making all these cup sets. You got to get on the, you know, get on this uh, bandwagon and push it forward as much as possible. Absolutely. And another part of this is that really could help push this over the line as well. Uh, Birmingham's uh, Birmingham Legion's women's team, uh, Legion WFC, their first ever home game is happening the day of the Inter-Miami match. And instead of playing at their normal home facility, they are moving the match to Protective Stadium, and it's going to be happening at 4 o'clock, and it's basically going to be a pre-show before the U.S. Open Cup game. So both Legion WFC and Legion FC will be sharing the same field on the same day, and it's going to be one of the biggest matches in both of the club's history, and I'm so proud of the club for doing both. But also it's going to be an opportunity for, hey, if some people want to show up a little bit early and watch some women's footy, not only will they be more of Legion fans, they'll just be women's footy fans, and that's good for everybody. It really is. Now let's preview this matchup in the quarterfinals, Wednesday, June the 7th, Protective Stadium in Birmingham, Alabama, 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central. Uh, It will be broadcasted live on the CBS Sports Galazzo Network. Talk about what Birmingham needs to do against Inter-Miami, but at the same time, the nation will have their eyes on you on the CBS Sports Galazzo Network through Pluto TV and, of course, the Paramount Plus app. Just kind of the nature of being a lower division team versus a top flight team, right? Um, The top flight team feels like they have to dominate. They're supposed to be the better team. So they are going to hold on to possession. This Inter-Miami team is going to try to put it to this Legion back line. These two center backs in Samuel Cavita, Alex Granale, are really the two strongest players on the team. Uh, This backbone is that. And this Legion team is built to counterattack with same pressure and counterattack. And if you're Inter-Miami, you're not excited to hear that because as going into one of these kinds of matches, you're expected to dominate. And this is a team that likes to hold on to possession as, as well. And I think that kind of falls into Legion's hands. 
if Legion can really take advantage of the channels that Inter Miami likes to create, they play in that three five two and if Legion can stay narrow, get Prosper Cassim, Tyler Pasture into those uh, middle channels and create overlaps through the wing backs, Inter Miami's gonna have a lot of trouble uh dealing with this Legion attack. That said there's going to be a guy who's going to be essentially a fan favorite for Inter-Miami. It's going to be Joseph Martinez being so close to Atlanta. So there's going to be a lot of Legion fans who are Atlanta United fans who are going to be watching Joseph and are going to have a little bit of heartstrings tied to him. But, you know, if Joseph could leave a little bit of a sadder man on this particular day, that'd be totally fine with me. That's absolutely fantastic, and I cannot wait to see what's going to happen um, for the Legion this coming, or shall I say in two weeks, absolutely, uh, Wednesday. Uh, Kaylor Hodges, Hammering Down, Hammer Down Podcast. Thanks for joining me again. Good luck in the quarterfinals, and hope to talk to you again soon. Hey, hope to talk to you again in two weeks. All right, take care now. Once again, Kaylor Hodges on the Birmingham Legion. Joining me now, of course, this man, he covers the Chicago Fire for the Lantern Soccer blog and formerly of course of hot time in old town formerly of SB nation uh ruben tish joining me right now to the chicago fire headed down to austin texas took out austin fc two goals to nil ruben can we say this is it possible the chicago fire is coming back to win another open cup championship well i won't say no question because out of all of the teams left in the tournament, I think the two most difficult matchup-wise are Cincinnati and Houston, who the Fire have to play. Granted, it is a home game for the Fire, so they have that advantage. But I, I, I think hey, if, if Cincinnati gets knocked out somewhere down the road and the Fire get past Houston – you have to think, just looking at all of the rosters of the teams left in the tournament, maybe bar the LA Galaxy, but the LA Galaxy have other problems. Um, the fire of the best roster left in the tournament. So oh, I, I, I would say, there. yeah, definitely. Why why was Ezra Hendrickson's um, tactics not working and of course we know Frank Klopas Chicago Fire legend obviously uh how he's gotten this team to play a lot better now well it's hard to say his tactics weren't working uh because if you look at the way the fire have been playing over you know in the league and in the in the open cup when he was there the first half the first uh 60 70 minutes uh, the Fire have, and and it happened a lot last year too, were the better side of the two teams playing. It's just that other coaches were able to make halftime and second half adjustments, and Ezra was not. And that's why I think primarily you saw the Fire losing games late is because he was either slow to react to what the other team does at, or – um, made the wrong moves. Um, several of the times that the fire lost points uh, late in games uh, is because he moved to a back five too early and all the defensive assignments were lost 
and the communication broke down, and all of a sudden you've got um, the most dangerous player on the other team at the back post wide open off a corner kick, and, and they score, and, you know, you, you drop points. Um, that's ultimately why I think he was dismissed. Now I think he was also scapegoated a little bit by George Heights' roster construction where he, he overloaded on some and places and, and left, you know, unproven academy kids to fill out the depth of the roster. And it, it's really a very, you know, top-heavy roster. And once you lose one or two guys, um, things start to go bad really quickly. So um, it's mostly a front office. We're expecting here uh, a clean slate going into next year. We don't expect George Heights to be here. Maybe he'll still be in the organization doing stuff, you know, with Lugano or liaisoning between the fire and Lugano or and, and stuff like that. Uh, but going into 2024, we expect a, a clean manager, sporting director, et cetera, probably the same person. No, we'll see what happens there. Maybe you think Frank Klopas will continue on uh, if he gets the job again permanently, or you think they're going to go after somebody else? No chance. He's there because he's a club servant, not because he wants to be a manager. Good man. That's always good to see. Um, moving on to this match, obviously, first goal was scored in the 27th minute. Rafael Chinos uh, finding that opening goal, and boy, did that really silence the crowd at the Q2. Yeah, it, it's interesting because on paper, obviously, like I said, the Fire were a better team than Austin. But going into Austin is always a tough task. You know, that, that crowd does a lot for that club. It did a lot for that club last year when they overachieved. Um, so it is a tough place to play. It was probably the draw I was least looking forward to seeing. When the quarter, when the the round of 16 draw was made, uh, when I found out that the fire was stuck in the the western half of the group, uh, hmm. but I I think that this team, not just under Frank Klopas, but all year, is very good at getting out in front and taking control of games early and putting themselves in positions to win by, you know, being the better team. And, and that's sort of what you saw there. Um, the goal by Shios is sort of what he does. Uh, he's a very good defender, but you don't expect him to score goals until he pops up onto a, a corner kick with nobody around him and he'll just finesse one over the head of the goalkeeper and into the net. That's sort of what he does. Uh, so, I mean, it, it was glorious. And then it was basically all fire the rest of the way. Yeah, it really was. Um, I mean, obviously, Chicago's defense has always been solid throughout the years. I know there's been a couple of seasons it hasn't been as strong as it has than it used to be. I mean, we all know C.J. Brown has always been one of those stalwart, uh, stalwart defenders throughout the Fires' history since coming into Major League Soccer, obviously. But they, I thought they played a very solid defensive game. And then, of course, in the second half, Kasper Shabilko, uh, Polish international, 77th minute, just bunts in a fantastic goal. 
three yards inside, and uh, it's 2-0, and really, like you said, I mean, this is just on its way to becoming a victory. Yeah. um, Casper, much maligned by a large portion of the fan base because he's very streaky and inconsistent. And when the club signed him, he was basically it. And they need the, the one thing this team needs and needs a lot of his goals. Um, because we talked about, and, and yes, the defense is solid until, you know, late in games and then concentration lapses and, and they give a goal. So this, this team needs to score goals. Throughout basically all of last year until he was replaced by John Duran and this year until he was replaced by Kai Kamara, essentially, Kasper Shavilko hasn't been scoring goals. But the last few games... He has scored. He scored against Atlanta. He scored, like you said, against Austin. Um, he's he's starting to look like the Casper Shabilko that we remember from Philadelphia. I don't know if it's a, a scheme or a tactics thing with Frank Klopas, um, but it, it, you're able to get things out of Casper Shabilko you weren't getting under Ezra Hendrickson. And frankly, it's the same with Sheridan Shakiri as well. They're, like he was, He's dead. The fan base and me, frankly, didn't want anything to do with him. I thought the fire should have sold him back to Europe off the back of his World Cup performance. Um, but, you know, the last week or two, he's been really good as well. What does that mean, you know, this as a three to four time open cup champion, what does that mean to everyone in Chicago? I mean, look, we all know MLS cup is always the goal, but you know, I remember those Chicago fire teams, whether it be under Bob Bradley, um, a couple of other managers that have made the fire go on these magnificent runs to win the championship. I forget the year you won it against the LA galaxy, but you know, this 2006, I was at that game. Thank you very much. 2006, thank you very much. Why is it always Chicago that has always been gunning for the Open Cup ever since it came into the league way, way back in 1998? Well, uh, I I guess the short answer is it's a trophy and you want to win it. Um, the, The long answer, I suppose, is there's a lot of history on this team that, excuse me, that ties back mm-hmm. into like the NASL and the, and the Chicago Sting, especially with like Frank Klopas, who played for both teams because he was young enough to play for the Sting and the Fire. Um, you know, you, we've got those ties. Um, the best team the Fire ever had won the Open Cup and then got robbed by Tony Miola in MLS Cup the same year or a year separate, uh, the 2000 team. So it's like this tournament matters a lot to its fan base. The idea that has been cultivated about getting to five Open Cup trophies, about being the first modern team to equal um, – Maccabee Los Angeles and Bethlehem Steel 
Um, that that's why the last time they appeared in the final was so devastating because they lost to Seattle, and that was, I believe, that was Seattle's third or fourth Open Cup trophy where they beat the Fire. So the Fire had a chance to gatekeep that and didn't do it, um, and and that sort of a craw in the fan base a little bit. Um, there's just a lot of respect here in the city for the game, for the American game, and for the history of, like I said, the history of soccer in Chicago with RWB Adria winning it and, and you know, the Chicago Greek Americans and a lot of the ethnic clubs coming on here and, and coming all the way today to the house. There's a, there's, there's a lot of fan crossover with the house and that game in the third round was special. Um, I know it was an easy victory for the fire, but the, the atmosphere and the soccer community around it was, it, it was a party and it was great to see. And, and it was great that both teams respected this tournament in the way that they both went about their business that night. And I think, you know, short answer, trophy, long answer, there's a respect here for the tournament and the legacy of the tournament that I don't think you find in a lot of other places. Very true. And I'm very, and I'm always happy to hear that. Uh, preview time. You're hosting the Houston Dynamo. We back over at SeatGeek Stadium, Bridgeview, Illinois. And, and that match will be broadcasted on CBS Sports Galazzo Network. What is that going to be like uh, having everyone across the country putting their eyeballs on the Galazzo network of CBS sports. And what are you expecting from Houston? Um, I honestly couldn't tell you what I'm expecting from Houston. I, I, I'm going to be even more honest. I don't know what I expect out of my own club half the time. Um, I expect, I expect both teams to put out their a lineups, but um. I don't know what Houston's league schedule is leading up to that game, but the fire in New England this weekend, they've got Toronto midweek, and then they have another game the week after. So it's just constant Wednesday, Saturday, Wednesday, Saturday. And I'm worried from the fire's perspective that they might break here. Um, That's my biggest worry. The transfer window won't be open yet. So, they won't have time to use and ingrain their their peace slot into the club in time for that match. Uh, but if they do get to the semifinal, they should have a brand new, we assume, a DP striker uh, if they can get into the semifinal to hopefully play the LA Galaxy because I love the history, especially in this tournament between, you know, the Fire and the Galaxy. You mentioned the... 2006 final, but there was a game in 1998 where Luis Hernandez stuck his boot into Peter Novak's thigh and he was out for two months afterward. And there's there's a sneaky amount of hate for the LA Galaxy in the Chicago Fire fandom. So I, I, I if if both teams win their quarters, I am looking forward to that semifinal. Well, listen, Ruben, thank you very much for joining me tonight. Hope to have you back on again soon on the show. And good luck in the rest of the league season and good luck in the quarterfinals. All right, thank you. No problem. Have a good one.
You too. Once again, Ruben Tisch, the Lantern Soccer blog, as he joins us tonight uh, to talk about that win by the Chicago Fire. Now I am very grateful and I'm very happy to have every one of you listen in on this interview as we discuss the LA Galaxy's victory over LAFC by a final of two goals to nil. The radio voice of the Los Angeles Galaxy, Joe Titino, joins me tonight. Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you for spending uh, your time with uh, on the show tonight. I really appreciate it. And with such a season of despair for the Galaxy and, of course, being in a place where I can definitely tell you that no one thought the Galaxy would be in, this victory over LAFC has been pretty good to see them have some positive news. Yeah, Daniel, thank you for having me. It's a good step forward for the Galaxy and, and hopefully where they can move on to in terms of MLS play and start making their way up the Western Conference table. And, and I think at this point you eye the playoff line, uh, get there first, and then we'll see what happens. No, very true. And as we you know talk about this matchup, um, what was that like to see – because we all know LAFC is involved in the CONCACAF Champions League. They're going to be playing in the right. final against Club Leon. Um, when you saw their academy kids, or at least their LAFC2 kids, being involved in this Open Cup match against the Galaxy, were you a little weary? Or did you think, well, the Galaxy, they should be able to get a result out of this? I think it's a little bit of both because be careful what you wish for, uh, you know, because if you, if you get the wrong result, uh, then that can really hurt you going forward, especially your confidence and so forth. And you're playing a team that is playing the biggest game of their young career at this point. So that's what you're dealing with. So it's kind of a, it's kind of a hornet's nest that you're going into in that situation. But being a mature team, you should be able to take care of business. And ultimately the Galaxy did that. And to me, it's more of a relief to get past that because it could have been any team. But in this particular case, it's a big rival, and, uh, and, and it adds a little bit more to what it turned out to be. So when I saw the lineup that came out from LAFC, at first I'm a bit surprised, and then you, you think about it and you say, okay, I understand what they're, what they're focusing on, and that's understandable. And from the Galaxy standpoint, the Galaxy lineup, I felt they needed a first-team lineup, and they went with that because they need, their need is a little bit different than what LAFC is. Their need is to, is to find some positives and to build upon those. Very true. And even though it was scoreless through the first half, I thought uh, Tyler Boyd in the 49th minute, that rip came out of nowhere. I didn't expect mm. him to volley that shot right into the net and beat the keeper the way he did, Jakovic. Yeah, well, I think it, it, it really uh, – mirrored his MLS goal, the goal he scored for the Galaxy. Same same base situation, right corner of the penalty area, uh, eyed it down, took the shot, took care of business. It was a goal of the week type of performance. I think it won goal of the week, or in this case, we start saying goal of the match day. Uh, but I believe it was. And so this this really mirrored that the way it, it, it developed for the Galaxy. And i like to see more of that from Tyler Boyd because they, they need a little swagger out there, especially getting into the attack and taking some shots from distance for once in a while and, and so they can open up that back line and allow for some passing lanes to develop for Chicharito or maybe even Dejan Jovalich uh, later on in matches. And, of course, Ricky uh, Puig, or uh, I believe it's 
Pooch. I, I don't know how you pronounce it. I hope I pronounce it's it correctly. A, it's, it's Pooch uh, with a hard G, so it's Pooch. Ah, thank you very much. Uh, Ricky You're Pooch. Welcome. I try uh, to get it right every night. Four. <laughs> <laughs> That's why I ask you first. <laughs> but um, four minutes later, he gets that big goal to make it 2-0. Celebrating in front of the big diehard supporters of LAFC at BMO Stadium. And uh, it just looked like uh, LA Galaxy finally in the driver's seat, comfortable uh, with that result. And they just uh, drove into the victory. Yeah, they got some things going. They made some good adjustments at halftime. Uh, you mentioned Tyler Boyd. He came on to start the second half. He didn't start the match. Uh, so, so for him coming on, that, that gave the Galaxy a little bit more bite going forward. Things opened up in the middle of the park. Uh, and obviously, you know, Pooch did what he, what he does. And he took up the space. He beat, what, three defenders and the goalkeeper and just touched it home. That, I don't know that that's going to happen in Major League Soccer all the time. Maybe it happened in this particular game because the roster for LAFC might have been a little naive in that moment, but you know, you take it and you build upon it and it's a positive and it was an emotional moment and Pooj took it all in. After the match, what was Greg Vanny's uh, expression? I don't know if you're able to attend the match or not, but um, if you spoke with Greg Vanny, I mean, what was his uh, feelings after the match? Was there relief? He felt confident. What did you see from Vanny that uh, he finally got something positive going for the Galaxy, even though it's been a, a dire year so right. far? Right. So I was at the match, and we broadcast the match. But uh, in, in Vanny's case, you know, Greg, Greg is never too high, and Greg is never too low. So he just takes things in stride. And so I think, it's like, okay, got the win. He's probably talking to the trainers and saying, are we injured anywhere? No, they came out pretty clean. Uh, they've been playing a bunch of games on short rest, and I think what, what he wanted to be able to do is get them get the win, get out of there, give them their day off, and then go back to work and prepare for the MLS match coming up against Charlotte on Saturday night. Very true, and hopefully we'll see if the Galaxy can get back on track in league play and uh, see what happens. What has been the problem so far this season with the Galaxy? And what do you think they need to do to correct those issues, not just in league play, but to continue on in the Open Cup and maybe make a run to the finals? Well, I think they're just giving up too many goals and really finding themselves chasing games. Uh, you know, I think there was a stat that went up recently that said the Galaxy hasn't scored a goal inside the first 30 minutes of a game in MLS play this year. And that's something that you'd like to see change. I mean, it's not horrific but if you're not scoring inside the first 30 minutes and the opponent somehow gets one and you and you've had the run of play and that was what the last galaxy home game the galaxy were had the run of play in the first quarter hour and they give up and they give up a goal off a corner kick off a set play opportunity and suddenly you're chasing the game and having to find your way back into that game and that becomes a lot of heavy lifting especially when you're you're of a compressed schedule in the month of may seven games i believe in the month of may and so that's been the big problem for the Galaxy in that regard. They, they kind of control the game from the start. They feel good about things. They think the goal is coming. And, and maybe, maybe they're just overconfident. They give up the goal back the other way, and suddenly they're chasing the game. And whatever the plan was starts to go out the window, and you have to make adjustments from there. And if you, you know, even the Columbus game, they're down one nothing, which is fine. They were playing to zero, maybe playing to one at halftime. But, between minute 41 and minute 45, I'm saying on the broadcast, get to the break. 
and then you can make your adjustments. You know, you can manage this game right now. And certainly what happens, they give up the second goal right at halftime, and, and now you're in trouble, you know, because Columbus comes out, they sit back, you look better because you're on possession, but they're, they're defending a 2 nothing cushion, and they take care of business from there. And so that, that's kind of been the story of the Galaxy season, that they're just taking the goal after starting brightly, at least they feel like they're starting brightly, and then, you know, they can't seem to get it done. And, and that's defensively, that's the problem there. Offensively, it's the final action in front of goal that's been hurting the Galaxy. Not necessarily the shots, not necessarily, necessarily Chicharito or Jovalich finding the back of that. The service to them in that final action hasn't been good enough, whether it's from the right side or the left side for the Galaxy. And that's something they'll continue to work on. Obviously, there's been some pretty good players on this team. Obviously, James Neal through the Galaxy's Academy has been strong. Mm-hmm. What other uh, Academy players have you seen that's been a part of these, this Open Cup run that you can say this guy should be on the starting 11 or at least on the first team uh, for a long time? Oh, I, think, I think right now, this particular year, I mean, again, again Seattle, they, they went with a first-team lineup, I think, at home as well. So when they when they joined the U.S. Open Cup in the round, I think it was round four, uh, when, when the Galaxy got into it. So it was a home game, and so they went to entertain the fans. They went with a first-team lineup for the most part. Uh, players, though, that have made their way through from Galaxy 2 that could sh- could contribute in the second half of the season for the Galaxy are guys like Preston Judd, who's a forward for the Galaxy. He did very good at, at Galaxy 2. You talked about Jalen Neal who's almost asserted himself as the number one center back for the Galaxy alongside Cotteris. We'll see how that goes uh, going forward as the Galaxy gets healthy with their other two center backs, Kuli Bali and Chris Mavinga, who played in the U.S. Open Cup. So in terms of the young players coming up, when the Galaxy made this transition from uh, USL to MLS Next Pro, a lot of their so-called veteran USL players went elsewhere. And they're really academy young players now at the MLS Next Pro uh, level for the Galaxy at the moment. Uh, a guy like Johnny Perez is playing there right now. He's coming back from a knee injury, so he's trying to find his form once again. Adam Saldana, who's a, a sixth player, he's having to you know go up against a guy like, for example, Daniel Aguirre, who's got the number two slot there for the Galaxy, and Gaston Brugman, who's got the number one slot for the Galaxy. So it's, it's hard to bubble up to get to the, to the big club right now. But Jalen Neal's contributing really well. Academy player, as you mentioned. Uh, you saw Julian Araujo go on to Barcelona, who was an academy player, uh, turn into a pro and an all-star in Major League Soccer. And Efrain Alvarez is, is still one of the homegrowns for the Galaxy who should contribute as well going forward. Joe, it's time to preview that quarterfinal matchup, and you're going to be on the road against Real Salt Lake over at America First Field in Sandy, Utah, on Wednesday, mm-hmm. June 7th. It was uh, Jefferson Savarino that got the only goal on the road at the Colorado Rapids. You know very well what Salt Lake can do, but what is the extra something you or you believe the Galaxy should be aware of taking on Pablo Mastroeni's Real Salt Lake? Uh, it's always a tough place to play. I mean, we always talk about playing in Denver, Mile High City, and all that stuff. I mean, Salt Lake also has altitude, and it's a difficult place to play. And so for some of the Galaxy players who may not have played there, I don't believe Martin Caceres has played there yet. Uh, it could be a rude awakening when the, when the lungs start burning about 10 minutes in, or maybe they start burning in pregame warm-up. So that's, that's something to deal with. That field there, although it's immaculate, 
it's a hard surface. So that ball flies and it goes quickly through. So that's something the Galaxy will have to be aware of going forward. Uh, and what Salt Lake does really well against the Galaxy historically has been their transition. And so if the Galaxy get exposed in the back, their transition is going to punish them. And that's something I think the Galaxy need to be a, be very wary of is to keep the game in front of them. They are the team that's on the road. Manage the game. Take your chances when the opportunities show themselves and, and go from there. I mean, uh, we're talking about Pablo Mastriani, one of the best sixes in Major League Soccer, and a former Galaxy player for a short time at the end of his career. So he's, he's going to be compact behind the ball also. What I would do, a team that doesn't like having possession, I'd force them to have possession and force them to make the game. Are you there? Oh, I'm sorry. I thought I got you there. Uh, no, right. I just wanted to say uh, thank you for joining me tonight. And uh, good luck with the rest of the MLS season. Good luck in the quarterfinals against the Real Salt Lake. And enjoy the Memorial Day weekend there, Joe. And uh, thank you once again for spending some time with my listeners as well as any Galaxy listeners that were listening tonight on the show. All right, Daniel. Well, thank you very much, and, and a happy Memorial Day weekend to you and your family. And, and thank you to all the service members and, uh, who, you know, gave the, the gave their life for our country, so we can have a better day. Absolutely, absolutely. Thank you again. That's Joe Titino, the radio voice of the Los Angeles Galaxy, as uh, they defeated. LAFC's Baby Boomers, two goals to nil at BMO Stadium, and now they're going to take on Real Salt Lake in the quarterfinals. Now, of course, this section uh, reserved for myself as the New York Red Bulls fell to FC Cincinnati in the penalty shootout, 5-3, but of course it was 1-1 through regulation extra time. Uh, Late goal in the first half by Yuya Kubo put FC Cincinnati ahead 1-0, and it looked like it was going to be Cincinnati in regulation until Dante Von Zier found a way to get the equalizer off of a midair volley, ripped it, bounced in the net past Alec Khan, and then it went into extra time. Um, you know, I think the uh, – excuse me, I think FC Cincinnati was looking to f- find a way to just steal a goal and uh, head home and uh, go straight into the quarterfinals. But it did not happen that way. The Red Bulls once again got an equalizer. And then you go into extra time, and two things that happened in extra time. Well, first things first before that. One of the two things, but not in extra time, obviously Lukinas returning to the club was a substitute, uh, played in the second half, and then got into extra time. And then a moment in the 94th minute where, once again, inferior refereeing catches the Red Bulls. The broadcasters on the Bleach Report YouTube page in Devin Kerr, Mike Mike Watts, said penalty. Everyone else that watched that match and posted that highlight said, that's a penalty. Fotis Bazakos, once again, an inept referee, did not give the penalty. Lukinas tracking back, I shouldn't say tracking back, tracking the ball in the, towards the Cincinnati area, 
gets taken down inside the area by the Cincinnati defender, and you can tell on the look on his face that he knew he took down Lukinias, and he knew I just gave up a penalty. Bozakos did not even blow his whistle to point to the spot. He did not even go to the far side assistant who had a better angle of the foul and said, nope, nothing to see here. Keep playing. Now, obviously, I am not going to sit here and say the Red Bulls should have won. They should have gotten the decision. The referee should have helped them out. No, no. The Red Bulls can win or lose a game all by themselves. But the truth is, is that once again, Crow is not doing their jobs officiating or dictating the laws of the game against the Red Bulls once again. No VAR in the Open Cup until you get to the semifinals, but still though. If the referee misses it, you don't have VAR to correct it. The far side assistant should at least be on his headset to tell the referee, I think you missed this, come and talk to me. Or the referee should say, okay, I'll go talk to my far side assistant. He did not. And the entire match continued on through extra time. And then he got to the penalty kick shootout. And even though, yes, Dante Von Zier got the game tying goal, unfortunately his penalty was stopped by Alec Kahn as Von Zier was the first penalty kick taker of the match. But once again, if the Red Bulls gets a penalty kick opportunity that should have been called, maybe, maybe it's 2-1 New York and they move on to the quarterfinals and they would host the Pittsburgh Riverhounds. Unfortunately, it did not happen. But once again, when you have inept refereeing and Fotis Pazakos is unfortunately the worst in the lineup for pro referees. They are, he is the worst of the bunch, the worst. You, or at least what I'm doing is, I'm speaking up not just because it's against the Red Bulls, but it's because I don't want any other MLS club to be suffering how he officiates a match. He needs to relearn the laws of the game or he needs to be thrown out. The man does not officiate the match properly. He makes Baldomero Toledo look like Pierluigi Colina. And you know Colina was one of the best referees in world football. So until something gets fixed on the referee side once again through pro, the New York Red Bulls once again get hoodwinked and sabotaged by inept refereeing. I'm not saying that they should have won the match because of referee help. I'm just saying that was a penalty that should have been called and the Red Bulls should have had a penalty kick opportunity. That's it. And then roll the dice Lay down your chips, 
Will the Red Bulls convert, or will Alec Khan make a save? That's all. That's all you can say, and that's all you can do. They should have had a penalty kick attempt to at least make it 2-1 if they were able to do it. If not, hey, you give credit to Alec Khan, and you give him credit for stopping the Red Bulls on the penalty kick shootouts. Because once Von Zier made that miss, it was 1-0 Cincinnati in the penalty kick shootout. They deserve to move on to the quarterfinals, Cincinnati, and they're going to be hosting the Pittsburgh Riverhounds in the quarterfinals. And now it's time to look at the schedule for the 2023 Lamar Hunt U.S. Open Cup quarterfinal round. Tuesday, June 6th. FC Cincinnati hosting the Pittsburgh Riverhounds at TQL Stadium, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Bleacher Report app as well as the Bleacher Report football YouTube page. And then at 8.30 Eastern, 7.30 Central, Chicago Fire will be hosting the Houston Dynamo at SeatGeek Stadium in Bridgeview, Illinois, streamed free on the CBS Sports Golazo Network through Paramount Plus or uh, the Paramount Plus app or free on the uh, Pluto TV app or Pluto TV website. Wednesday, June 7th, Birmingham Legion will be hosting Inter-Miami at 8 Eastern, 7 Central at Protective Stadium in downtown Birmingham, Alabama. That will be on the CBS Sports Galazzo Network. And Real Salt Lake will be hosting the LA Galaxy at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, 7.30 p.m. Mountain at American at America First Field in Sandy, Utah. That will be seen on the Bleach Report app or on their football YouTube page. I want to thank my guests tonight, John Krasinski of Pittsburgh Soccer Now, Doers Soccer, excuse me, Bayou City Soccer, Kaylor Hodges, Hammering Down Podcast, Ruben Tish, The Lantern Soccer Blog of the Chicago Fire, and the radio voice of the Los Angeles Galaxy, Joe Titino. My name is Daniel Feuerstein. Join me this coming Monday night for another Feuerstein's Fire American Soccer Show. We're going to preview the 2023 CONCACAF Champions League finals between Club Leon and LAFC. Once again, my name is Daniel Feuerstein. Thank you very much for listening to me. As always, please enjoy your football. Thank you. Take care so long, and bye-bye for now.